This is a Federal News Network podcast. The latest haboob in Washington concerns whether the Supreme Court will overturn Roe versus Wade. Could that affect the federal workforce, though? It's not an outlandish question. We get the latest from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And Mitchell, there is at least one senator that is looking at the federal workforce implications of this potential overturn. Right. Uh, A lot of people may be surprised by this. You know, the Senate this week will plan to vote on legislation that would codify Roe versus Wade on Wednesday. Democrats don't have the votes to get that passed. But as they were talking about their various strategies in trying to protect abortion rights, this interesting point related to federal workers came up. And Washington State Senator Maria Cantwell said something I had not heard before. She argued that if the Supreme Court decision goes forward, it could have an unanticipated impact on federal agencies and even argued that it might be a brain drain. Her contention is that some federal workers, especially women, may not want to work in areas where abortion has been effectively banned. So, for an example, she pointed to NASA workers in Florida where there are tight restrictions and a lot of other states where there are going to be trigger decisions in connection with Roe v. Wade if it goes in the direction that it's expected. All of this, of course, remains to be seen. Of course, as it stands now, the Federal Employees Health Benefits Program does not allow for the use of federal funds to pay for abortions. And regular watchers of Congress know that for many decades, the Hyde Amendment still remains in effect, blocking federal Medicaid funding for abortion services. So we'll be watching these issues. It could have an impact on federal employees in a variety of ways. Yeah, the question is, you know, what in a practical sense could Congress do about that particular issue? And you're not going to close down all of the NASA facilities in Florida because nobody wants to work there. So I just wonder, does she have any legislative ideas in mind here or just was that kind of speculation? I think it's still in this kind of speculative stage. I think a lot of Democrats, frankly, are just working around the edges, looking at a variety of different things. You know, they've floated this idea through the White House that they might actually utilize Medicaid so that it could somehow help to pay for people with low income to go to other states. But a lot of these things, as you point out, they're really in the speculative stage right now. But it is interesting how they're touching on a variety of issues. Now, the House, just to switch gears here, has been out now and they're back in this week. But, of course, some members have already expressed lather on both sides over this potential decision. What else is going on, though? They've still got some work to do, and I'm just wondering if any of this will throw off the progress made by the four corners, so to speak, meetings of earlier about the budget for 2023. Exactly. I mean, there's been so much attention from the past week related to the Supreme Court. Let's not forget there are huge issues coming for Congress right now. As you point out, there's the budget, which they're still trying to grind out. And with the House coming back this week, those four leaders will try to get together on appropriations and try to move things forward. Right now, it's still kind of in the staff stage. And then you have the big issues like Ukraine aid, $33 billion that the president wants. There really wasn't much progress to speak of last week in connection with that because of the whole kerfuffle related to the Supreme Court. And then related to that is COVID funding. Senators want $10 billion in COVID funding, at least on the Democratic side. Republicans don't really want that. And it remains to be seen whether it's going to be tied to Ukraine aid, or I think more likely the two are going to have to be split. But then even if they're split, then there's another issue, and that's immigration in Title 42. Of course, that was the policy that was put into effect under former President Trump. 
Trump that allows for basically migrants to be turned away rather quickly at the border in connection with health-related issues. In just a few weeks, the Biden administration wants to drop that. Senate Republicans want to have an amendment taken up that would prevent that from happening. So you have all of these different issues swirling around in addition to the anticipation on the Roe v. Wade decision. So lawmakers have a lot of work to do. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller. He's Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. And return to the office continues to be something that agencies are really having a difficult time with. And we see this happening at Social Security Administration. This got Hill attention? Absolutely. A lot of lawmakers are really concerned about what federal agencies are doing in connection with getting people back in the federal offices. And as you know, there was a recent release of all these pulse surveys in connection with federal employees. And one of the agencies that had the biggest problems, at least in terms of morale and concerns about returning to the office, is the Social Security Administration. And the head of the Social Security Administration, as Federal News Network reported, is really concerned about these high rates of exhaustion. They're not getting the support they need. At least a lot of employees feel that way. And it had some of the lowest ratings, frankly, of any federal agency in connection with just getting basic guidance about what's going to happen. And so this agency, along with many others, is trying to figure out what it's going to do. Social Security Administration, as some of these other agencies, is dealing with a real deficit in the number of workers it actually has historically. It's down uh, probably to its lowest point in about a quarter century. And then there are other issues such as HUD, One survey found that four in 10 of those who work there said they would get a job somewhere else. And that could include, of course, the private sector if it provided more flexibility or remote workplace options. So this is an issue, again, that many of these agencies are still struggling with as they try to figure out exactly how to get people back into the office and yet still allow workers to have some of that flexibility that a lot of them, frankly, liked as they went through the early stages of the pandemic. And meanwhile, the IRS had a hearing this past week, and they are having a problem that has to do with being in the office which is mainly all of the paper that people still mail to IRS offices. Right. As much as the IRS would like everybody to just send theirs in on a computer, it just doesn't happen. And that is the most labor-intensive issue that the IRS is dealing with, is this paper issue. Many Americans still, because either they don't have access to computers or they just don't want to do it or they always did it that way, are still sending in all of this paperwork. And the IRS Commissioner Chuck Reddick told a Senate subcommittee last week that They're trying to get uh, some of their vendors to figure out how they could digitize these pieces of mail that come in up to more than 100 million pieces of mail. He did say the IRS is making some progress. It's a long slog in connection with getting through this huge backlog that they've had that taxpayers have been complaining about. It's uh, just under 2 million, about 1.8 million unprocessed tax returns. Again, another area where lawmakers are really concerned with oversight on the IRS. Plus, there's money in those tax returns and the government might want to get its hands on there. Golly. Well, again, how does this all add up to any kind of work on the budget as the summer starts to have its advent and the end of the fiscal year is almost coming into view soon? There was that Four Corners meeting, the appropriators and ranking members from the Senate and House. But 
is it going to go beyond that at this point with everything else they're embroiled with? Well, it's really interesting because the Four Corners, when they speak to reporters here on the Hill, they all give these basically optimistic indications that they're going to move forward, but they're always kind of a little bit vague or a little bit opaque, and it's really unclear exactly how far along they truly are. I think the real nitty-gritty is going to happen in these coming months. Obviously, it has to, and lawmakers know that they just have to get this done. It's got to be done. Yeah, so maybe it's more like a cornerstone than an actual right, coming exactly. around the corner here. All right. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. As always, thanks so much. You bet. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also 
reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us, um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, 
Let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the the art of of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not... my mind to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Anyone else have trouble sleeping last night and the night before that? Same. And I've tried everything, but it either doesn't help me sleep so I'm cranky and tired the next day, or I sleep and then I'm drowsy the next day. Luckily, Seize the Night and Day is here. Go to SeizeTheNightAndDay.com to learn more about insomnia and how you can seize the night. And Carpe the Diem. Make their mission your mission because they will not rest until we all rest. Hey, hon, what you doing with your phone? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.